Good morning. Oh, I feel weird saying good morning ever since I watched The Hobbit. <laughs> Just picture Gandalf somewhere in the room asking me. <laughs> See? Well, are you, uh, are you telling me it's good? Are you saying that the morning is good per se, or are you commanding me to have a good morning, or are you saying that it's about to be good? And uh, <laughs> To all of you, I'd, I'd actually like to say all of the above, <laughs> but it's, it's not because of anything that I have to offer. I just want to remind you why we, we meet in this gym every Sunday is because we we believe in a hope that transcends anything that I can bring to you from this pulpit by my own nature. That there, you know, there is a sense, a very real sense for the Christian that when we open up the scriptures, we believe that God himself speaks to us in our time of need, in the situation at hand. There's, there's a lot of stuff that I can't make sense of. There's a lot of stuff that you can't make sense of either, but we, we come together in this building every Sunday because we believe that God has something to say to us and that God, being risen from the dead, has something to say that is worth our time and worth our attention. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Continuing in our text together where Paul speaks of the implications of the gospel in the life of a person who has apprehended it, he goes on to say in verse 21 this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. This is God's word. Let's pray. Love you, Lord. We lift our voice to worship you, O oh, my soul rejoice. <laughs> God, we confess together that we groan in this body desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven. Yet we trust and believe that you have us here as the salt of the earth, as a city set on a hill, that we might not hide the light that you have lit, but that we might shine it for the world to see that Christ Jesus is exalted, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the day in which you will come for us again. You will make everything that has been wrong right you will renew us, our youth, like the eagles, set our feet on the, upon a rock. You will wipe away every tear. You will undo everything that has been broken. And so, Lord, as we look at your word, as we listen to the Holy Spirit, we pray that in doing so, you, Lord, having left us here to live and to move and to breathe, we would 
leave this building, we would leave this church gathering with a renewed sense of why you have us here. You would break us from our holy huddles. You would move us to be on mission with a righteous and holy vocation to take to others, to proclaim to others, and to live out among others who are lost and without hope that there is a generous God who lives among us. I pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. I don't know if you've seen a pattern unraveling since verse 25 in Ephesians chapter 4 with the Apostle Paul. This pattern moves like a golden thread through everything that he has been saying up until this point, and it will continue, uh, I believe, through verses 28 and 29. It's that when God saves a person out of darkness, when God saves a person out of darkness, there is first a fundamental change to the identity of that person. That's first. Put away your checklists and your bulletin points and your fill-in-the-blanks until later. The first thing that happens that makes a Christian is a fundamental change to that person's disposition, their affections, their nature, their identity. That is a Christian. God saves a person, changes them from the inside out. Following that, he gives them because of that different way, uh, different way of life, he gives them then from there a lens by which to view everything. All the good, all the bad, everything in between. We can call that a worldview. Out of our new identity comes a new worldview. And out of that new worldview comes subsequently an effect on everyone else around us. Meaning our new identity creates a new worldview which affects everybody around us differently than before. That is our life. We could go home right now. The life of the Christian is different in that sense. New identity, new worldview, new relationships. Same people, different relationships. And as we make ourselves focus on verse 28, speaking of not stealing and speaking instead of working, we see Paul just taking that same pattern of the gospel and applying it to your life from nine to five. Not what we're doing on Sunday mornings, but what you will be doing and what we will be doing on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday from nine to five. What does it look like to, to, to live and to exist when the gospel is transforming everything about you among your coworkers, with your paycheck, on construction, in the warehouse, in the office, so on and so forth, Paul presents to us a different way to view our work. And he does it in the same way that he's been doing truth-telling instead of lying, in the same way that he's been telling uh, forgiveness and reconciliation instead of unforgiveness and anger. He'll do it later with foul language, and he's doing it now. He's presenting to us a different way to view our work. You've ever wondered how your faith should impact your workplace? This is for you. If you don't have a job, this is for you too. He gives us a change in identity. One. Two, he gives us a change in worldview. We can call it a renewal in our sense of vocation. I'll just leave it at that. And three, 
He calls us to generosity, a change in identity, a renewal in our sense of vocation, and a call to generosity. Here's what I mean by a change in identity. He says in verse 28, the thief must no longer steal. Now, Paul is speaking to a church kind of like this one, or maybe similar, similar to this one, in which out of a group of people, uh, he's speaking to the church in Ephesus, would have been people who were the working poor, who weren't, so to speak, like, uh, let's not even talk about like the kleptomaniac or the person who's just, just wants to steal for the thrill of it or is just evil at the very core. He, he's including those, but let's just speak about the normal, practical person who's trying to put food on the table, who's trying to make, uh, make ends meet, who's trying to get presents for their kids, is short on income, he's speaking to the working poor, who in one point in time, in history, perhaps before they encountered Jesus, would have been used to supplementing their income when they had a, a sense of lack. Remember, these people in this time didn't have any sense of, uh, any type of welfare. There were no handouts. If you didn't make enough money, you had to do something about it, or you were starving. So perhaps a good-natured father didn't have enough money to put food on the table, would begin to think to himself about stealing from his employer. Or maybe not even stealing, but cutting corners. Or some sense of dishonest gain that you could, if you thought about it enough times, justify by your good intentions. These are the type of people that Paul is speaking to. In other words, in the mind of an individual like this, and perhaps people in this room, the loss of a very good thing and a right thing will happen if we don't do a wrong thing. At the core of this is a sense in which we want to protect ourselves. This comes from self-preservation. I need to do this thing. I need to do this wrong thing in order to protect myself. I need to cut these corners in order to make sure that I have enough food. I need to uh, fudge the edges in order to uh, make sure I am taken care of. I need to get what's mine. I need to protect myself. I need to uh, watch out for my own needs. Paul presents a different picture. Now all of this comes back from verse 22. All of this is connected to the gospel that transforms the person's heart. Remember what he said in verse 22. You took off the former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and you are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. That means, verse 24, you put on the new self. Or rather, the Holy Spirit put on the new self on you. The one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. The old person would have been motivated and enslaved to self-preservation. What do I need to do in order to watch out for my own needs? What do I need to do in order to get ahead? What do I need to do in order to watch my own back? Paul would say, the new person doesn't have to worry about themselves. You still work for a living. You still work to put food on the table. You still work because you, uh, because you need wages. You still work to feed your family. You still work to support yourself. But your primary motivation has been switched. The driving factor in the life of the Christian is no longer yourself. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Keep your thumb where we're at right now. 
Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in relation to this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He says, this is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. He's telling this to his disciples. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Some of us are in desperate need to, to hear this this morning. He goes on, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor, spin thread. <laughs> I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, won't he do so much more for you? You have little faith. So don't worry. Sing, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For idolaters eagerly seek all of those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need of them. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of his own. In other words, Christ's disciples are not primarily motivated about how they're going to get by. Their primary motivation in life is the glory of God. It is to seek first the kingdom of God, meaning that they have somehow been set free from worry and anxiety to think about the larger picture of God's glory. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4 that that freedom from anxiety and worry comes from an identity shift by the power of the gospel. The identity that is changed by the power of the gospel allows the Christian to say, I am going to seek first the kingdom of God instead of my own selfish needs. And in doing so, God will take care of my needs in the process. Some of you may say, well, what does this have to do with work? Here's what it has to do with work. A change in your identity will give you a heightened sense of vocation on Monday morning. A radical shift in who you are as a child of God will change how you go to work for the rest of your life. You'll no longer go to work primarily for a paycheck. You'll no longer go to work primarily to put food on the table. Though you get a paycheck, though you put food on the table, you will primarily go to work asking yourself, how can I seek God's kingdom first from nine to five? A renewal of our sense of vocation. Paul says this in the rest of uh, the middle of the verse. He says, the thief must no longer steal. Identity shift. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands. Now you may ask, if work isn't centered on meeting one's needs, which maybe perhaps some of you thought that was what work was for. Put food on the table, get a paycheck, get far in life, retire, RV. Everything's golden. If work isn't solely about that, not that those are bad things, but if work isn't centered on meeting my personal needs, and what is it driven for? Well, if you get self out of the way, you know what you get? God's design for work, which goes all the way back to Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, God creates everything, then he creates man in his own image. He says this, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then after he says, I am going to create humanity in my image, he gives a description of what that looks like. He goes on to say, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the men and male and female. God blessed them, and look at this. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. We might think of subdue in some sort of controlling, manipulative way in which we're to just manipulate things for our own self, but that's not what the author of Genesis had in mind. Literally, subdue means to cultivate, to further develop, to steward that which is already created. God creates humanity different than any part of his, the crown jewel of his creation. And in making man and woman in his own image, one of the telltale signs of their image being that which makes them a little bit like God is that they have been given the ability and the stewardship to cultivate and to develop everything. God then sends Adam into the garden. And when God could have been perfectly capable of naming all of the animals, he calls Adam to do so. A sign of Adam being given stewardship over creation. To cultivate, to develop, and to steward. And that calling continues on the life of every human being to this day. Some of you thought, man, I thought work was a part of the curse. (laughs) Work was designed by God before the fall. It was tarnished by the fall. It was actually created to be meaningful and good. Work was actually created by God who worked for six days before he rested. He designed it to be something that is a, gives a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and completion. Many of us do not experience that today because of the effects of the fall, but that is God's original design. I will create something perfect. I want you to cultivate and develop it and steward it for my glory and to enjoy it in the process. God creates image bearers to create and cultivate after him. That means labor, work, was originally designed to be meaningful. It wasn't designed to be pointless. It wasn't designed to be a dead-end endeavor. Now we sometimes, knowing that there's maybe a sense of that or wanting our jobs to matter or mean something, perhaps we try to make that happen. There's a number of ways we do it. One, we might only think of work as meaningful in any type of spiritual sense if we uh, drag into it some obnoxious spiritual activity. Perhaps some of you are a plumber. (laughs) Perhaps one of you is a plumber and you think, "I, I have no idea how plumbing Uh, relates at all to the kingdom of God. But I will make it meaningful. I will make it spiritual by starting an obnoxious Bible study right in the bathroom while I'm working. Sometimes we think in terms of those things. In order to make it spiritual, I need to 
I need to say like Jesus over and over or I need to like talk about God in some obnoxious way or I need to insert some, some scripture awkwardly as I'm bagging groceries. Well, there might be, you know, occasions for that. That's, that's not what God necessarily had in mind when he said that work was meaningful. He simply dictates that work is meaningful simply because it's commissioned by God. So how is a plumber faithful to God on mission in his workplace by being a faithful plumber. By doing his job well. By showing up. By being an example of faithfulness and stewardship to the non-believer. Another way that we think to a fault that work is spiritual is if our jobs are spiritual per se. I've heard this. I was a I had a desk job, I was working a corporate job, and then I got saved out of that, and God is now calling me to be a pastor or a missionary. That is sometimes true. God will sometimes call people out of a situation or a job in order to do something for 1% of you, maybe. For 99% of you, God's going to keep you where you are. The job is then sanctified by the Christian. We often look for or leave a job in order to find a job that is sanctified by itself, but God declares and seems to say and suggest that the job is sanctified simply by the presence of the Christian in it. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, to a group of Corinthians, who just got saved, he would say, each one of you must live his life in the situation the Lord has assigned him when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Each one must live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him, meaning Christ will save a plumber and then send that plumber back into the field to live on mission for the glory of God. Now there's always exceptions to the rule, right? If you have an addiction to gambling and you happen to work at a casino in Las Vegas and you get saved at the blackjack table, God might call you out of the casino for a bit. And if he doesn't, maybe you just go out on your own. There's there's always exceptions to the rule, but in general, God does not save people so that they can start a holy huddle or a monastery and separate themselves from the world. He saves skilled people in the workforce. He he saves people that get into places that pastors and reverends and missionaries could never reach on their own. He sends them back to where they are and he uses them with the power of the Holy Spirit to reach people that the rest of the church might never meet. God, in other words, changes the identity of a sinner He gives them a renewed sense of their vocation. Then he sticks them back in their environment with a new calling. And here's the the great part. That calling isn't necessarily something obnoxious and sensational. It's not like he sends you back into your office job with fireworks and pyrotechnics. It's not like he sends you back into Vaughn speaking in tongues at the, the, the top of your lungs. Paul would say he sends you back into the job with a sense of generosity. The thief must no longer steal, verse 28. Instead, he must do honest work with his hands. 
so that he has something to share with anyone in need. What Paul is hinting at right now is because of the gospel, because of the changing of your identity, because of the renewal of your sense of vocation, you no longer have to play by the world's rules anymore. You can go back to your old job. You can go back to what you're passionate about. You can go back to that field in which you work with a different mindset. You no longer have to be dictated in your sense of vocation by what the world says is right for you. What are some of the world's, world's rules? We work purely for money. You need to do whatever you can to make a certain dollar figure, and once you get to that dollar figure, you can be satisfied. You no longer have to be enslaved to that way of thinking anymore. One of the world's rules is a sense of power. I need to uh, do all that I can to get to the top, because once I get to the top, I will have a sense of security about myself. You no longer have to do that anymore. Egocentrism. I need, to, uh, I need to get to a place of status where everybody recognizes me and honors me and I will steamroll people in my way until I get there. You no longer have to be enslaved to that anymore. Unless I get ahead in life, I will not have a sense of fulfillment. You don't have to be enslaved anymore to that. You don't have to be enslaved or captured or arrested by a longing for self-preservation because that chain has been broken in the life of the Christian. You get sent back into your vocation with a sense of freedom. Those rules that the world is governed by, apart from the grace of God, are all grounded in the fall. And this is where work gets pointless. Back in Genesis chapter 3, God gives Adam and Eve everything that they've ever desired, not the least of which is his pure, unadulterated presence in a garden. He gives them all the food that they want, first menu in all of history right there in Genesis. He gives Adam a companion that fulfills him and satisfies him and fills a void He walks with him in the garden. He supplies him all of his needs. There is no shame. There is no sin. And the one thing he asks Adam, don't eat of the tree. If you eat of the tree, you will die. Now, Adam eats of the tree. And he dies. Now, there is nothing magical, I don't think, about the tree per se. I don't think there was some magical potion or juice in the tree that caused Adam to die. Rather, I believe that Adam, in eating of the tree, and this is the fulcrum of it, this was the fall. When Adam ate of the tree, he was, in a sense, saying to God, even though you have supplied everything that I need, even though you have given me everything I need, and over and beyond, even though I have the companion of my dreams that fills a void, even though I get to walk with you in the garden, even though you satisfy my existence, I still don't trust you to take care of me. I am eating this fruit because I am still sovereign over my life. Therein lies the sin of humanity and has still been perpetuated till now. We don't trust God. We trust our income. We trust our paychecks. We trust our ingenuity. We trust our persuasiveness. We trust our tenacity. We trust our intellect. We trust ourselves. As a result of the fall of man, work becomes cursed. Now, even though we can still see glimpses of the grace of God in work and how work should be to this day, 
I think of a famous book by Jim Collins called Good to Great in which he uncovers a different type of leader that goes against the conventional grain of the corporate world in which we think, okay, CEOs and leaders in order to be successful have to be egocentric megalomaniacs that just steamroll everybody in order to get to the top. And he uncovers and identifies a different type of leader that works in a humble manner, not for themselves, but for a greater end, perhaps for the the group or the corporation or the institution. We can see glimpses of that, how work should be, but by and large, and even in myself personally, we still keep going back to the ancient idols of self-preservation. And here's what that looks like in our job. Here's what that's going to look like for some of us when we wake up and go to work at 7 a.m., 8 a.m., 9 a.m. in the morning. We will approach our job as the provision for our sense of security. This job makes me who I am. My identity comes from what I do. And Christ comes in and says, your identity comes from who you are in Christ. Paul, in other words, is not just saying, hey, everybody, stop stealing and be better people. Get a job while you're at it. Paul is saying, and in fact, undermining the idols in our workplace. Some of you may ask, what... Why does this give us a different way to view work? Isn't this verse about not stealing? What does this have to do with my job? The reason it has to do with our jobs and our workplace and our vocation and our employers and our employees is because this entire section is tied in to verse 22 and 23 and 24 that the identity has to be changed before your behaviors are changed. See, I could stand behind this podium and tell you until I'm blue in the face, stop stealing, be honest, get a job. And you could, in fact, listen to me and stop stealing and get a job. But the same motivations that drove you to steal will infiltrate why you get a paycheck. Those same ancient idols of self-preservation. I used to steal in order to make myself feel good about myself or in order to take care of myself. Now I will work in order to take care of myself because I am sovereign over my life. It does no good to preach about your behaviors without first preaching about the power to change your identity. The truth behind this statement is not behavioral therapy It's that your job is not the source of your joy anymore. God is. And if God is the source of your joy, you can make coffee for a living for the rest of your life and still be satisfied in who Christ is. You can be jobless and still be satisfied in who Christ is. You can work because while you're working, you can enjoy who God is and who he has been to you. And Adam's work... uh, which became grueling because he lost touch with God, becomes for you fulfilling because you are intimate with God even in the workplace. Some of you ever feel when you go to work like your eight hours is completely pointless and irrelevant? Do you ever clock in and you're like, why am I doing this? Perhaps, and maybe, and I don't know, but it's worth asking ourselves, perhaps on a daily basis, maybe that pointlessness, maybe that feeling and sense of insignificance sets in 
because we're really in this job, even if it's a good job just to amass money or to make ourselves feel comfortable or to find that security that keeps evading us. And when you live that way, when you work that way, what has happened is you have stepped out of God's original mandate for work and you have returned to the sin of Adam and you have said to God, I choose to be sovereign over my life. Instead of cultivating creation and developing and being faithful to what you have called me to do because I enjoy you, I am going to watch out for myself. That's a... That's a hard thing to escape from. When the economy isn't the way that you wish it would be, when your degree didn't get you the job that everybody told you that you would get as soon as you got out of college, when you didn't get that raise that you were banking on, when you got fired, laid off, when you got demoted, when your pay got cut, it's hard to alleviate that curse. It's hard to stop worrying about yourself and the only way that you can get out of a mess like that is to fixate and focus your eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's what the gospel does to you and I. It first says, first of all, you have no hope in preserving yourself. You cannot preserve anything about your life. You can't save yourself. You can't even stop one hair on your head from not turning gray. Much less stop sickness, much less stop doubt, much less stop your discouragement, much less change the amount of money that you're going to make, much less cure your anxiety. You can't preserve yourself because you are not sovereign over your life. You need a savior to step in and intervene into your business. And the person who has understood that, who has been able to back away by the power of the gospel impressed on their heart by the Holy Spirit, is able to say, I can't save myself for the first time, will experience and taste freedom like no other. You see, generosity isn't a switch that you can turn on. It's not like you can leave this building and say, you know, I've just got to be more generous. I'm just going to buy more presents for people. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to be a better person. That is a behavioral modification. It will not change your heart. It will not cure your nervousness. It will not fix your anxiety. Generosity is something you can't turn on. Generosity is turned on when the identity is renewed. Generosity only becomes a natural and even an enjoyable part of the life of a Christian when we begin to deeply, on a deep level, realize how generous Christ has been towards us. Then you can let go of sovereignty over your life. You can say with Jesus without grimacing, oh yeah, those who try to hang on to their life will lose it. Those who lose their lives will find it. And in doing so, you can use your vocation, your paycheck, your time, your clocking in, not for your own means, but to bless others. You can have a greater reason to live and work than a paycheck. And isn't that what we want in this life? More than just working nine to five, from week to week, from check to check. You get that in the gospel. This... In this season, I have not seen this, at least on a human level, seen more vividly 
more deeply exemplified in a 27-year-old school teacher by the name of Victoria Soto. In the news, it was expressed by her close family that they desired that her story would be shared in the aftermath of a great tragedy. Probably everybody knows the story already of the gunman who walked into an elementary school in Newton, Connecticut, and opened fire on six and seven-year-olds on December 14th at around 9 or 9.30 in the morning. Victoria Soto was a 27-year-old young school teacher. I believe she taught the first grade at that school on that morning. And through the duration of this attack, one thing dawned on her. And here's what went on in her mind, as if I knew. I can only piece it together from how she responded. But it wasn't to save her own skin which is perhaps what I might have done. It wasn't to look for the nearest exit. It wasn't to make a break for it. It wasn't to freak out and hide. The first thing that dawned on her were 16 school children. See, her family often spoke of Vicky and their affection as speaking about these 16 children. She often referred to them in her affections as her 16 little angels. So the first thing that dawned on Vicky in one of the most traumatic experiences in our history was someone else. Without skipping a beat and without thinking of it, according to the reports, she took her children, rushed them into a closet, and began to cover them as much as she possibly could with her own body. As far as the reports dictate, all of those kids were saved and their lives were spared at the cost of her own. Her life shines in the midst of a tragedy. She's just a, she's a school teacher. She's not going around the world, moving mountains, she's teaching kids. And yet her life shines as an example of someone who simply had no desire to preserve herself and live that way in a real situation. Some of you will hear this and perhaps feel inspired or maybe simultaneously inspired and discouraged at the same time. And here's why. Perhaps for some of us, we have not been so selfless in our jobs, in our relationships, in our lives. Perhaps some of us have stolen. Perhaps some of us have cut some corners. Perhaps some of us have simply blown, out, blown up in outbursts of anger We've not even cared much about our job situation, much less been a hero. So perhaps we look at something like this and say, I, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm ashamed. To you, I want you to remember this, and I want you to remember it well. Vicky's selfless and sacrificial act of love, and it would seem that in every tragedy such as this, someone emerges with a similar story. Every single one of these gives us and points to a hope that transcends anything that we could accomplish for one another. Her life speaks of something that transcends in the midst of evil because her heroism really points us to Jesus Christ. 
when sin put you and I in the crosshairs of death, which, unlike children, we deserved because of our sin. Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, watched over and covered us with his arms and with his body and for us took the blows that we deserved and had coming towards us. And he paid the ultimate price for our salvation by dying when we should have died. Then after lavishing you with all the love that heaven can afford, he sends you back into the world that is broken to do the same. On Monday, you're going back to jobs with people that have no hope, that have no joy, that have no point to live in life, that have no rescue, that don't know why they're going to wake up on Tuesday, who have hidden fears and hidden qualms, hidden sins and hidden addictions and things that you probably maybe even don't even know about. God is specifically sending you back there. To show them that there is a hope that transcends anything that they have ever heard of in this life. And it may start, not even with you, opening up your Bible and blabbing. That might come later. But it might start with you simply being faithful with your job. As the Holy Spirit begins to minister to them. Through the life of a person who has been changed at the deepest part of who they are. If you've never experienced a change in your identity and you're still racked with fear and anxiety and shame, the gospel of Jesus is offered to you just like anyone else. Repent of your sins this morning. Follow Christ. Believe in him as the Messiah who rescues you from darkness, who has done everything that has been needed to be done for you to be saved. Throw away your self-righteousness on the foot of the cross and say, I come to you for my all-sufficiency. I come to you for my salvation and I will follow you and follow you alone and know in your heart that you are saved by grace through faith. For the rest of us that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we can leave this place and go into the world with a hope that transcends. Why wouldn't we? Heavenly Father, Reminded of the words of Jesus who said, I have spoken these things to you so that your joy would be complete. Pray that our joy would be complete. Lord, you tell us that this is your command to love one another as you have loved us. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And God, before we go out from this place, from our church, trying to be better Christians, trying to love others, I pray instead, Lord, that you would radically meet us today as we worship. That you would pour so much of the lavish love and grace and truth of the, of the Father abroad into our hearts today, that as soon as we leave, Lord, that love would spill out in affection. In other words, God, we cannot we cannot experience, we cannot show and practice what we have not first tasted. And there are many people in this church that need to taste the love of the Father. So we ask that Holy Spirit, you would comfort us today. That you, the, the Prince of Peace, would bring the peace that surpasses all understanding. You would guard our hearts in Christ. That you would not leave us as we were today, but that you would send us into the world with a greater hope 
on mission in our vocations for the glory of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.